Support for this podcast and the following message come from the University of Alabama, offering over 70 premier bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degree programs in a flexible online format through Bama by Distance. Learn more or apply today at bamabydistance.ua.edu. Invisibilia is NPR's show about the invisible forces that shape human behavior. This week, Invisibilia tackles a politically relevant question. How can two people look at the exact same thing and see something completely different? To answer it, the show brings you a musical about umpires, a fairy tale about bears, and the story of a man who breaks out of his reality bubble. You can listen to Invisibilia in the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pop Culture Happy Hour, NPR's roundtable podcast about what we are watching, reading, and listening to. I'm Linda Holmes. I'm the editor of NPR's pop culture and entertainment blog, Monkey See, and this week we are flinging ourselves at the power of Wonder Woman. Plus, we're chatting about this weekend's Tony Awards. And as always, we'll close the show with what's making us happy this week. But before we get started here in historic Studio 44, let's go around the table. I'm Stephen Thompson with NPR Music. I'm Glenn Weldon. I write for the NPR website. And with us this week in our fourth chair is our pal Petra Mayer of NPR Books. Hi, Petra. Hi there. It's so good to have you back. I'm happy to be here. We're always happy to see Petra. Now... We have teased this episode, and now we are finally here to do it. You know by now that Wonder Woman is not only a critical success, but a commercial one as well. And it seems poised to breathe a little bit of life into the gray world of the DC universe. Wonder Woman is directed by Patty Jenkins, who was widely praised for her feature debut, Monster, starring Charlize Theron in 2003. Jenkins is working from a script by Alan Heinberg, and the cast includes Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman, Chris Pine, Robin Wright, and many others. The movie finds Diana, not addressed here as Wonder Woman except in the title, fighting her way through World War I and learning to navigate the human world in which she is very much a visitor. Uh, when we spoke about summer movies, uh, Glenn, you had said you were worried about this movie and sort of excited about it in equal measure, really mm-hmm. wanted it to be good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's done well. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you think of it? Uh, I thought it was hugely entertaining. Uh, you know, she's a tough character to get right. She is a warrior for peace. She's kind of a living contradiction, which is one of the reasons uh, it's taken so long to get a movie about her. It's not the only one. Maybe we'll get into it. But um, she was created to be a flag that punched Nazis. Uh, so putting her in World War One was a risky choice. I think it paid off. We should state here that, you know, the superhero genre rests on the back, traditionally, of straight male wish fulfillment, right? And I think it's possible to make too much of the fact that this is a film in the superhero genre that stars a woman, was directed by a woman, and written by a gay dude. Uh, I think it's possible to make too much of it, but I want to make a lot more of it because <laughs> I think that's usually important. Yeah. Um, I've been reading some reviews, uh, film Twitter, and a lot of male reviewers saying, 
Look, there's nothing new here. This is just the superhero genre. Uh, this is just a big, bloated, you know, action film. What's new here? And I keep wanting to say, there's nothing new here for you, jerk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what is new here is that for the first time, 51% of the population can experience something that has been relegated to and limited to 49% of the population for decades, which is to see a version of themselves on the big screen kicking butt and taking names, being heroic. You know, we talk about representation and whenever we do it it can risk becoming kind of an academic abstract uh conversation representation is emotional when you create a superhero story you must make the audience want to cheer at some point Mm -hmm. and that's Mm -hmm. what this film does so well repeatedly yes it's hope yes it's uplift yes it's idealism but this is a film that believes in something it believes in heroism which is unusual at least in the dc universe it believes in sacrifice it believes in selflessness uh, there are quibbles to be had, and we can get to them, but I, I just love this film. Yeah. How about you, Petra? What did you think? Uh, well, I wanted to jump on something Glenn said about representation, because, yeah, there are, I have quibbles with the movie, yes. Um, there were parts that I thought dragged a little bit, but the weirdest thing that happened to me was that I found myself tearing up during all the battle <laughs> scenes, and I was looking around online, and I am not the only person that had, not. had this reaction. And I was like, why am I crying at Robin Wright shooting arrows at German soldiers? You know, it's not objectively an emotional moment, but I think Glenn nailed it. It was the just somehow, you know how like when when there's an, a, an overwhelming rush of relief can make mm-hmm. you cry? Like, that's what it was. Mm-hmm. I was like, I had all the feels. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that I thought was interesting about it, I think you can um, definitely take issue with the breadth of that representation in some ways, right? Sure, I sure, think sure. there are people who have rightly pointed out there are really only, I would say, three kind of primary badass women. There is Diana, there's her mother, and there's her aunt. If one of those had been a woman, a woman of color, I think that would have been great, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. But you can also look at other kinds of representation. When I was looking particularly at Robin Wright and I saw... Uh, but also Connie Nielsen, who plays Diana's mother. And I saw that they had left their skin and specifically, this will sound weird to you, particularly maybe if you're a dude, but like particularly their necks oh, I feel looking you. like women's necks look when they're over 40. Mm-hmm. And there is a little bit of kind of a, it's hard to explain, but like ro- the top part of Robin Wright's body is very muscular mm-hmm. in this movie, but also sort of corded in a way that is often not allowed to be displayed in movies as strength. And it made me think, wow, there's no such thing in most, most um, corners of American pop culture as grizzled women who are presented in like a sexy way, the way that there are grizzled men. I don't know that I would use that adjective on them, but it made me think a ton about aging and that these older women who are trainers are allowed to appear to have aged. Mm -hmm. Sure, and to also not be treated or portrayed with this sort of pity and condescension that like, you know, nothing motivated, nothing that was motivating them, nothing in their character choices had to do with their age or appearance. No. And I thought that was great. And I will say, you know, I did appreciate the fact that 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 larger group of women with whom Diana grows up does have a measure of of racial diversity and kind of they're all uh, tough. They're all athletic, but they're athletic. They have different athletic bodies in some ways. And I appreciated that what do you think, Thompson? Yeah, Petra said something about feeling emotional watching this movie. And, and I, I experience that sometimes when I watch something 
imagining it through the eyes of my kids Mm -hmm. and just being glad that my kids have access to a movie like this. But I also experienced a lot of just the simple joy. In a way, it's the joy I felt watching oddly enough, Mm Ant-Man. And and the reason I compare it to Ant-Man is all through Ant-Man, I was marveling at these action sequences that were just being shown from different perspectives, shown in different ways. And these action scenes had elements of that. There are are surprising angles. Some of it is simple, like like kind of John Woo, slow-mo, freeze frame kind of of qualities. But But it felt visually exciting and inventive and fun. And even something as simple as like the force of a blow would shear a car in half. Mm-hmm. And and you just felt like, even though I've seen a million trillion cases of things smashing into other things on the big screen, it felt different. It felt inventive. It felt like just somebody who hadn't made a million action movies before making an action movie that didn't look like every other action movie. I'm going to defend in this case that slow-mo thing, which certainly we've seen a million times, right? It's mm-hmm. practically an iconic element of the Avengers movies, mm-hmm. that kind of freeze wallet, it, it, right? It felt different for some Here reason. in this, I'll, I'll give you my three reasons why I think that's such a smart choice in this movie. One is, I think they are very aware that at certain moments they're pausing to create new iconography. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, because of the representation stuff that we've talked about, I think that's important. Um, another reason is they are trying to create a very specific fighting style among the Amazons. And so... They are trying to not just say they just go in and bash everybody, but there's this sort of side flying kick Uh and there's the leap. And those things are both basic elements of their fighting style. And almost like in real martial arts, you could look at it and say, oh, these are the elements of how this is taught and what they do. But the third one is I... I think it's not a coincidence that there are so many elements of their fighting style that resemble ballet and gymnastics. Mm -hmm. Because to me, it's one thing to sort of have women fight in a movie where it looks exactly like, you know, just bashing into everything. But if you are a young athletic girl, two of the things that a lot of young athletic girls wind up involved in that are coded female throughout a lot of the levels of competition are gymnastics and ballet. Mm -hmm. Ballet, not competition technically, but, you Mm -hmm. know, excellence, I'll say. Um, And I think it's not an accident that when you see this tremendous physicality in fighting, it has these elements that look to me like gymnastics and ballet. Does that make sense? I think you're exactly right. And I think actually that feeds into the other thing that I wanted to say about the action sequences, which is that there's a lightness to it. Mm-hmm. Even as the movie is being set in, yeah. in many ways, it's a World War One movie. Yeah, yeah. Petra, I want to go back a little bit mm-hmm. to sort of the, the your quibbles with kind of pacing and things like that. Because um, I, I think that's fair. It comes in at, what, two hours and 20, which yeah. is yeah. not... Not that long for a superhero movie, but you know, there's it does have have several main segments. Where what? How did you feel about those segments and how they fit together? There were moments as I was watching it where I was noticeably thinking, "Hmm, I've fallen out of this movie a little mm-hmm. bit." Um, I didn't think the transition from Themyscira to London was handled particularly well. Also, I mean, just on the surface of it, because where the heck is Themyscira that you can get there <laughs> right. in a tiny sailing dinghy in one night yeah. to, that is to a, under London Bridge? That like, is a curious my, question. My Mister, yeah. my inner Mister logic was bugged by that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it, it it sort of dragged a little bit. I can't I can't really put my finger on one particular place. I just thought it could have done with some nickel and diming. You yeah. Know? yeah, I agree. And also for a while there, 
you think it's going to transcend the superhero genre in a very basic way, where we think for a while uh, that maybe there is no big bad. Maybe the villain mm. is man's inhumanity to man. And if they followed that through, that would be fascinating. Hard to do in a superhero context, but fascinating. Mm-hmm. And then it's not. (laughs) And then there is a big final scene, which no spoilers, but basically it's like uh, crazy ex-girlfriend, Daryl Whitefeather unbound. And you're like, there's just, (laughs) there's a piece (laughs) of facial hair that just kicks me out of this big scene. Uh, That is just the silliest thing. But still, but up to that moment, you think maybe they're going to do something. I'm interested in that because I think they sort of split the difference on that. I think what they wind up doing is kind of, and Thompson's nodding, I think maybe he's with me on this. I think they are still saying that. I think they're still saying that. I think they're saying both. Mm. I think they're trying to identify, and I don't think it's that big a spoiler at this point. I think they're trying to identify that there is both something that feels like it's almost external to people that changes their nature, but also that people then have their own options about how to, about what to do with those bad instincts when you have them. Mm-hmm. I think they're still playing around a lot with that. And I did appreciate that because to me, it's very, it was very timely to have her spend a lot of time in this movie realizing that humanity can be a really hard team to root for sure. sometimes. <laughs> yeah. They are very straightforward about asking the question, does mankind really deserve to be saved? Mm-hmm. Which is something that most superhero movies do not ask. Right. Do you know what I mean? I agree. The form that the very final conflict takes is something we have seen. Yeah, before. that's yeah, that's true. And that is a failure of imagination that comes from the studio mandated yeah. uh, character of it. The fact that yeah. it is a big tentpole movie. I think that's true. But Honestly, that does not negate yeah. all the good stuff that came before. Yeah. Honestly, I mean that didn't bug me. I mean, you go into a summer superhero movie with certain expectations. Yeah. And in your notes that you passed around, you asked people to consider who their favorite superhero Chris was, and mine is definitely the Pine, you know. Mm-hmm. He's got the blue eyes and the self-awareness, and I will always love him. And here he's playing a human um, World War One spy. As Steve Trevor, yeah, traditionally Steve Trevor. Wonder Woman's love interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I liked their chemistry. It was adorable. But he is will always be my favorite superhero, Chris, because he nailed his interpretation of Captain Kirk in the Star Trek movie without... Oh, interesting. Sliding over into Shatner impersonation, which, you know, it's always tempting. But that made me think about the connections between Wonder Woman and the J.J. Abrams Star Trek reboot and why I have the same philosophical problem with both of them, which is not to say I did not love both movies Mm -hmm. and have have seen and will see them multiple times. But they're both visually lovely Lots of fun, action-packed, great performances, summer blockbusters that completely miss the actual point of the original premise, which in Star Trek was not bang, bang, shoot him up. It was UN in space. And in Wonder Woman, hello, she's a feminist. William Moulton Marston created her specifically to fight for the rights of women. That was part of her mandate. If you're going to stick her in London in 1918... Where are the suffragettes? There's a ready-made plot point there that ties directly into her core mission that her creator gave her. And the movie didn't even nod at it. I mean, maybe I'm just being, I'm having like a moment of history nerd rage, but that's 
that's at her heart. And at the end of the movie, like practically her last line is, you know, I fight for love. And that, I mean, come on, women superhero be fighting for love. Like, yeah, but that's also at the core of the character, I'm afraid. Uh, I mean, okay, yeah, no, that's she, she, as her originally conceived, she would defeat war through compassion, love, uh, the power of women. Fair enough. Uh, and as soon as William Moulton Marston was taken off the book, uh, DC came along and totally gutted her and made her swoon over Steve Trevor as opposed to the, the other way around. So I agree with you. I, I, I didn't necessarily think she needed a love interest. I thought it was interesting that she had one and maybe it would have been a more interesting film if she didn't. Uh, but it, it's that's as much a part of her DNA as anything else. Yeah, I agree. With, yes, Glenn, Glenn, as usual, has more context than no, no, me no. on this. No, 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 no. I think you're but... both. I think, I think yeah. you're both. You've got a point. I think at the same time, there is, I think, a very crucial scene in this movie where they're making their way through the trenches near No Man's Land in World War One. Part of this is she's a fish out of water. So they, they use that sometimes for comedy and sometimes for commentary on humanity. Uh, but there's the scene where she's going through and she's seeing wounded soldiers. She's seeing people in peril, people in trouble. And she's saying, uh, like, she wants to help them. She wants to kind of break away from from their current objective to, to help a person she sees. And on one hand, you could say this is part of her being motivated by love or whatever but it's also setting the stakes of the movie in terms of this is a movie that cares about people and I do think that's novel and I do think that's important and it is a big part of why I loved it so much yeah it's interesting to me because on the one hand I completely agree with Petra and I would have loved to see I think the bringing up the suffragettes and things like that is absolutely right and I would have loved to see more text that's overtly since she grew up in this land of women she seems to think in terms of Amazons versus humans and there's not much engagement necessarily with the difference between among humans women and men do you see what I'm saying Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I would have loved to see more engagement with that but at the same time what Stephen is talking about for me was she overtly embraces certain kinds of power that are, I feel, traditionally first coded as feminine and then undervalued. The power of deciding you care about trying to save everyone. The line about love definitely is clunky. Mm-hmm. I thought, it itched me a little. It itched me a little too. But at the same time, I thought, I kind of want that to be okay. Like, I kind of I kind of believe in that. And I kind of <laughs> want it to be okay for somebody to just say that. So I really feel both parts of this, because I, like Petra, would have liked to see more overt manifestations in the story of the fact that she would obviously recognize what in 1918 London would have been massive gender inequality, which she would not have just assumed was normal. Mm -hmm. She would have wondered, why are all the people with all the important jobs men? You know, and she didn't seem to pay much attention to the that. The film touches on it when she walks into the yeah. war room and that right. becomes a huge thing. But right. it is, I agree with you, it's right. only touched upon. Right. But you don't see her reaction. Right. I would have liked to see more attention to that too. But, but gosh, I think it's a good movie. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go see, I'm seeing it again on Sunday. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I think I will probably go see it again. Well, uh, I know... I know that many of you have seen Wonder Woman. Come and find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH or tweet us at PCHH and tell us what you thought of Wonder Woman. Now, when we come back, we are going to talk about the Tony Awards and some of the plays and musicals that won and didn't win. And we will be joined by a couple of very special guests, our friend Trey Graham and our friend Chris Klimek. So come right back. 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Hulu. With the largest streaming library full of your favorite reality TV shows, Hulu is the home for reality TV's biggest fans. Catch all the drama, all the tears, all the heartbreak, all the competition. Because Hulu has your reality TV. Start your free trial today. Learn more at Hulu.com. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. On Sunday night, Kevin Spacey hosted the 71st annual Tony Awards. Unlike last year's ceremony, which became a fairly anticlimactic coronation of Hamilton, this year's show spread its awards around a little bit more. Big headlines included Dear Evan Hansen about a socially anxious teenager winning Best Musical and Oslo, a dramatization of the signing of the Oslo Accords in 1993, winning Best Play. Hello, Dolly won Best Revival of a Musical and August Wilson Jitney won Best Revival of a Play. We don't spend a lot of time on theater here on the show, but we figured that we'd bring in a couple of our theater ringers to talk a little bit about the season and about the award show. So joining me and Glenn in this segment, first of all, is Chris Klimek, who writes about theater from time to time. Welcome, Chris. Hello, Linda. Lovely to see you again. Lovely to see you, Chris. And in our fourth chair, the originator of the fourth chair, the often imitated but never duplicated, Trey Graham. Hi, Trey. Hey, it's nice to see you. It's always good to see you. And one of the reasons why we invited Chris and Trey, both of whom uh, write about theater here in D.C., is that several of the big shows that uh, got attention at the Tonys on Sunday night got their starts here in D.C. or have some other connection to D.C. Uh, They include Sweat, the Lynn Nottage play that recently won the Pulitzer, and Come From Away, the show, uh, the musical that won uh, Best Direction on Sunday night, and also Dear Evan Hansen, uh, the Best musical and the winner for the lead performance of Ben Platt. Chris, you saw Dear Evan Hansen in D.C., is that correct? Yeah, I sure did. Almost two years ago. And and, I mean, that version of the show was pretty much intact. Like there's some songs have been changed, but six of the principal cast members were there. Ben Platt was already in it. And uh, I remember being very moved by it. I mean, of the three that I saw here in D.C., that was the one that resonated with me the most. People talk about, I can't see Broadway shows. They're so expensive. I don't live in New York. Very often, Mm -hmm. some of them are the same productions that you can see in in the theaters in your town prior to when they wind up there. They're the same essential idea. They have most of the bones. The thing is, Broadway brings uh, budgets and razzle-dazzle sometimes that doesn't exist in these regional theaters. So it's this kind of balancing act. You'll get a production like Dear Evan Hansen at Arena Stage, which was absolutely, you know, Eight tenths of the way there, right, yeah. Chris? Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was basically ready well, to go. Apparently, the show new was, songs. I didn't realize. Yeah, there was that, new uh, stuff. New, new and there at was the top of each act. Which there I was didn't know about. one cast change, I think. Yeah, it's, it's pretty small. I know yeah. there are like six of the principals. Yeah, were, it's, you know, a, it's a very set. small cast. Yeah, but these guys have been working on that show for eight years. Yeah, so. and this is uh, Pasek and Paul, who are the same team that did the music in La La Land. La La Land. So good year for those guys. They are the hottest property in songwriting right now. Yeah, it's true. Good year for those guys. So, Dear Evan Hansen won Best Play. Ben Platt, there's a wonderful New York Times profile about the physicality of that performance. Glenn, I'm curious. You saw the ceremony. Yeah, that's it. I'm just parachuting in as somebody who's just seen the ceremony. And you can tell why he won just from that performance. It is so emotive and there's so much going on. Step out, step out of the sun because you've learned, because you've learned. If you watch that guy, if you watch 
various videotapes of him doing it on evening shows or late night shows. He does it the same way every time, uh, except when he adjusts it for the room. So it's it looks like a 25-year-old emoting all over the stage, but it is, in fact, an extremely thought-out, polished, yeah. professional set of choices. And yeah. I love that so much. Yeah. He's so good yeah. at this age. There's also a clip of him performing the same number that they did on the Tony Awards, which is called uh, Waving Through a Window. And when you watch that performance, it is ratcheted down because he's on TV. So he's in close-up all the time mm-hmm. compared to right. when I saw it in the theater from the fourth row, it is much bigger mm-hmm. because you have a, a totally different place. So it's interesting, like Trey said, to see such a, a physical performance. He talked during his acceptance speech about the physical therapist right. who's keeping him from sort of taking on the hunched posture of the character. It's really quite something. Yeah. And, and I mean, that that landed with me different. Like, I, I sort of chuckled when he thanked his physical therapist. And then I my second thought was, yeah. Well, well, yeah, of course. Yeah, you know, there, if you're there, doing this eight times a week. Uh, there's a yeah. great uh, New York Times profile where they spoke to him about the physical demand of that part Hmm. um, because When you see it, you think, I can't imagine doing that eight times a week. It's it's so It would be so physically demanding. So a couple of other things I want to touch on. Uh, also a big winner on Sunday night, Hello, Dolly, the revival starring <laughs> Bette less. Midler, which kind of seems preordained. Tell me, <laughs> right, Trey. More yes? or less inevitably. Yeah. Right? So you've got this, this monster show that was a monster hit in at least uh, one major previous production. There's only been one Broadway production of yeah. Hello, Dolly before that's, this. Did you yeah, guys know that? Remarkable. No. Um, it was the one. Uh, yeah. with Carol Channing. And then the replacement, for those of you who don't know your theater history, was Pearl Bailey. Yeah. So this massive casting coup, this enormous African-American star replacing Carol Channing, who yeah. everybody said was the only person who could ever play this role. And then mm-hmm. they just replaced the whole cast and with this big star. So now there's this uh, campaign for when Bette Midler goes out, maybe further down the run, they're going to replace her with Patti LaBelle. Do like, it. Patti LaBelle is actually campaigning do for the it. role, from what I hear. One of the funny things was, Bette Midler didn't perform. They didn't do, like, a big Hello, Dolly number. That wasn't a funny thing. That was a very upsetting thing. They it was a did, very upsetting um, thing. They did David Hyde Pierce standing in front of the curtain singing this piece of, of uh, song and dance band Yes, stuff. which was cut from the original. Business. And a, another but, great little piece of history, because yeah. it was cut from the original, and they've put it back in because he's so good, and yeah. because, uh, frankly, I think they need to give better rest. I cut the ice to ice cubes and got a higher price. I shaved the cubes to ices for still a higher fee. A big tycoon said, very enterprising in your organizing, son, you must come wake for me. I think that was something that ran throughout this show. Were these songs in every case the best showcase uh, uh, for ooh. this show right no I, I think the the Dear Evan Hansen one I think is a fine sure. you know the one from Come From Away is sort of their here's who we are introduction to this town I think that works serving okay. you a lot of once serving that. you <laughs> yeah well right yeah. but also I felt like the, the so the Hello Dolly one was a little odd Groundhog Day, which is a musical adaptation of the movie, is actually quite charming. And Andy Carl, who is the lead in it, is really fun and funny and energetic and has this kind of sleazy charm that's really ingratiating Mm. in a a wonderful way. And what they did was their kind of of end-of-the-show resolution number, which is 
always the most boring part of any musical. Almost always. Am I right about that, Trey? Very I, often. I don't know about the structural judgment you're making there. But it's sometimes, often a boring Sometimes part. the final love duet is, you know, a great big love duet. Is that yeah, the 11 yeah. o'clock number? Is the, that that is not the 11 o'clock number. The 11, the 11 o'clock number is a big solo number usually. But you're right about in this particular instance, man, that was some yeah. vanilla boringness. It was vanilla boringness. And it's too bad because he's really fun in that. Yeah, I think they wanted uh, maybe a... A love song? A mid-tempo number? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, how did that strike you? Well, I mean, uh, I am representing uh, the <laughs> average American who has seen none of these shows. And part of the function of the Tonys every year <laughs> right. is to say, hmm, maybe I'll go to New York and see that if, right. I, if I can. Right. Uh, Come From Away, Stood Up, Possible. Uh, definitely Dear Evan Henson, Falsettos, or as I like to think of it, Quads the Musical. Yeah. <laughs> because, yeah. good Lord, those yeah. racquetball shorts on uh, uh, Andrew, Kristen Borle and Ed Reynolds. And, and, yeah. That stood up, but the rest just kind of laid there. Groundhog Day was a snooze. Uh, the Great Comet was certainly a lot of going on, hmm. um, but there was audience participation, so I'm out. Uh, <laughs> Miss Saigon, complete snooze. That mm. was not a, a particularly good number to it's highlight that show. a particularly good show. Yeah. And, uh, Trey's he- not a fan. Hello, Dolly, Penny in My Pocket, we talked about. And then War Paint. Now that is Patty Lapone and Christine Ebersole as two divas singing about makeup. That just felt pandering. Have you seen War Paint? I have not seen it. One of my friends is an understudy for Patty. Okay. Yeah, I, I felt, I haven't seen it. I haven't heard the music from it. It felt to me like I thought it would be Bigger. I thought it would be more, and I thought I wonder if this is representative. This is the second yeah. time that I thought that the NPH opening number from a couple years yeah. ago, bigger, was going to start playing yeah. behind you. Yeah. Right. It just yeah. keeps happening. So it's a show about Helena Rubinstein and Elizabeth Arden, these two women who sort of redefined the face of American beauty mm-hmm. for women, and they've deliberately taken the path of not making them cat fight. Yeah. Right? So I think there's a limited amount of uh, drama built into the show, maybe. I haven't seen it. I can't, yeah. I can't really say. Um, I'm hearing that the music is not the most thrilling thing in the world. Okay. But uh, I'm sure that it's perfectly serviceable. Yeah. Mm. To go back to Hello, Dolly for a second, they could have done Elegance. They could have done Put On Your Sunday Clothes. If they didn't want to highlight Midler, if she didn't want to do it, which yeah. once they heard that she was nominated, a lot of people tuned in to see her do something. Yeah. yeah. So here's Besides my calculation. They would have had to pay a thousand people to do those numbers, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, David Hyde Pierce is known to Middle America from Frasier and everything oh, else, yeah. right? Oh. So they put him out there because everybody adores him. There's no one in the world who doesn't like David Hyde Pierce, mm-hmm. right? And he gets to do this thing that a lot of people don't know he can do. Yeah, it's a very low lift in terms of something yeah. to put up on stage um, if you're trying Just to Just if I'm the it. Tony's producer and yeah. I want to give everybody a break for a little bit yeah. and David Hyde Pierce is available, I would totally put him out in front sure. of the Sure. Right, but it's not as though we didn't get to see Bette Midler do anything. I mean, she planted her feet and stared down that orchestra until they stopped. She Talked sure down did. that orchestra. That was, that was yeah. yeah, they tried to play her off. Yep. Uh, my favorite part was she got to the end of the play you off music. I know, right? Revival. Shut that crap off. I just want to say, I just want to say, I just want to say, I just want to say that revival is an interesting word. It means that something is near death and, and it was brought back to life. Hello, Dolly. And I do, I do want to talk a little bit about the plays. Um, Sweat, uh, I really loved. I saw, I wrote about on the blog. Um, indecent, one for its direction. And I thought that that was also a very deserving win. 
And Oslo, which uh, t- the, oh. which Jennifer Ely, who Trey and oh. I both adore, was, <laughs> was in Oslo, um, as was Jefferson Mays mm-hmm. and uh, Michael Aronoff, who won a Tony yes. for his role in that. Anytime you can write a three-hour play about the negotiation of the Oslo Accords. About a summit. In which I am never bored for a moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it did not surprise <laughs> me that that won Best Play, even though Sweat is great, even though Indecent is great, and even though A Doll's House Part Two, for which Laurie Metcalf won a Tony for playing Nora. Right. Uh, I mean, who would dare who to come back to A Doll's House? Dare. And yet it's really an interesting play. A Doll's play. House, the classic Ibsen play that, you know, to, yes. to which or against which, you know, so many yeah. other plays are measured. Yeah. And oh boy, the cast of A Doll's House part two. I mean, Chris Cooper is in that. Jane Howdyshell is in that. Condola Rashad, who is really good in it, in this very interesting, complicated performance. If you are in New York and you say... I can't go to these musicals. They're all sold out. The tickets cost $300. Go see a play. They're go much... see a play because they're probably on half price at, at the booth. Yeah. And it is a heck of a season for yeah. new plays the... on Broadway yeah. this year. They're more in the price range of a treat right. as opposed to a down payment on a house. <laughs> Speaking of play people, what did you think of the gambit of letting the uh, uh, writers, the playwrights, come out and introduce you to their play? Would you have that work? Well, have there's work a, for you? there's a long history of the Tonys really struggling with how to present plays because mm-hmm. there's nothing like a musical number that can give you kind of a yeah. flavor of a play. And as you can see with musicals, sometimes that doesn't work either. Mm. But I thought having the playwrights introduced so that you could hear what they have to say, at least it's shining a light on people who are not always highlighted. I liked it. Maybe that's just because Lucas Nath is one of the playwrights from the last few years whose work I've enjoyed very much when I've seen it here in the district. Um, Glenn, I have heard object to hearing authors read their own work, <laughs> just like a, you know prose yeah. authors, and think, saying it's too performative. So I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out your objection. It's just it's just it gave me brown acid flashbacks to the workshop when people say my work, my, um, my yeah. play is about. In but this I case, just, I, I, how do I you refer to your own books uh, <laughs> when you speak? Of them? Uh, I don't. Okay, he, I think he refers to them in the thir- the book mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, in the third person almost, by which uh, I assume he but, means the Bible. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> right. As a bit of television, it doesn't always work because yeah. you know. Playwrights can be shy. Mm-hmm. They maybe don't have the same presence that an actor has, which the Tony Awards this year tried to split the difference by having the stars of these plays introduce the, the authors, mm-hmm. which was nice because we got to see a little bit of Jennifer Ely. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> we, we miss her. Um, so, uh, and I think before we go, I do want to talk a little bit about Kevin Spacey mm. and the hosting situation. Oh, I I was such a fan, not only of obviously the Neil Patrick Harris years mm-hmm. uh, of the Tonys, but some of the other hosts where the openings and kind of the spirit of the thing has been pro theater in general. Mm-hmm. The opener here was much more, first of all, inside jokes about yeah. plays mm-hmm. um, and musicals. Um, how many people are going to know Andy Carl and Groundhog Day hurt his leg, which is what a whole mm. joke was about? Yeah, that joke was for the room. It felt insidery to me. And ultimately, the joke of it was Stephen Colbert and other people showing up to reassure Kevin Spacey that he could host. Right, because he was quite famously, at least if you follow these things in the theater world, yeah. he was quite famously not the first choice for this ceremony. Yeah, well, which which I really prefer it when it's a go theater, people go kind yeah. of opening, which is what the, the best one ever, 2013, Neil yeah. Patrick Harris. Uh, <laughs> um, so you think it should be bigger? <laughs> but also the ones that are kind of like, don't we all love theater? And it didn't feel that way to me. It didn't. It kind of felt like a big Hollywood guy coming in to host the Tonys. And yeah. that's not entirely fair 
to Spacey because he right. is a theater Absolutely. guy. Absolutely. It's nothing and against like, him as an actor. He ran the old, yeah. ran the old Vic years. in London for years. Yeah. yeah. And he did O'Neill on Broadway yeah. a decade and a half ago and was very, very good at mm-hmm. it. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, mm-hmm. it's not fair to think of him as an outsider. No. But he just really tanked, didn't he? I was so with him. I wanted him to be good and well, thought you know, the Carson bit was going to bring see, it back. The, that's oh. it. The New York Times uh, raked him over the coals this morning for a lackadaisical opening number, but some pretty great impressions. And I would flip that. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, thought, I, thought, I thought the opening number was a solid B plus. I mean, yes, it was insider jokes, but he, you know, he he, he gave it his sure. all. Not one, but two references to uh, coming out, uh, which he's just trolling us now. Right? Uh, yeah, he <laughs> sure fine. is. Go you if that's if that's your thing. But man, like the cutting edge of 1998, where were those impressions? <laughs> Carson retired in '92, right? And you know, is dead. Yeah. So <laughs> also, yeah, it really felt old to me, and it felt like he wasn't sure where to go with the banter. And then, may I point out, one of the last times you saw him, he came out in his Frank Underwood from House of Cards mm-hmm. persona, accompanied by Robin Wright, who is currently in Wonder Woman, which is which the I, biggest movie. I had movie just come from seeing, on and I kept the, waiting for them to... On the planet, yeah. and yet she doesn't talk. She doesn't speak. Isn't acknowledged. Right. I mean, maybe she's there as a prop and she doesn't want to speak or right. can't contractually speak or something. That's <laughs> what I'm thinking. But <laughs> you can't get a joke in there about the fact that she's going to get put an arrow in his butt. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't... He was Lex Luthor, after all. It it felt it so. It mm. felt so strange to me. Yeah. I don't know, but I did enjoy the Tonys, and boy, I enjoyed this theater season. So I'm so glad that all of you guys could come in and talk to me to help you turn the, off the dark. That's what we're theater. here for, Linda. We're here to turn off the dark. Thank Ooh. you, thank you so much, Chris Klimek, <laughs> and thank you, Trey Graham. Nice to see you. We miss you all the time. And when we come back, it's going to be time for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What is making us happy this week? Petra Mayer will be once again back with us for that segment. So come right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Hulu. With the largest streaming library full of your favorite reality TV shows, Hulu is the home for reality TV's biggest fans. Catch all the drama, all the tears, all the heartbreak, all the competition. Because Hulu has your reality TV. Start your free trial today. Learn more at Hulu.com. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. We are about to get to our favorite segment, what is making us happy this week. Before we do that, though, we do have a piece of news that we wanted to acknowledge, and that is the death of Adam West, who played Batman on television. And as you may know, uh, we do have a certified Batmanologist on the panel. So, Glenn, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about Adam West? Sure. I mean, here's a guy who uh, shaped Batman forever and also shaped me forever, for better or for worse. Uh, I wrote about him on the blog. That's kind of where I would send people and one of the great things I liked about writing about him for the blog is that I can show people uh, the screen test uh, that compares his take on the character to Lyle Wagner, who was also up for the role, and you can see it there. Better than anything I could say, you can see it all there, uh, what he did and how large he looms in the culture. Yeah, so to read that uh, very wonderful piece that NPR published over the weekend, you can find it at npr.org slash monkeysee. And so uh, now we are going to get to our favorite segment, What is Making Us Happy This Week? Stephen Thompson, what is making you happy this week, buddy? A wonderful Netflix comedy special, uh, Homecoming King with Hasan Minhaj. Now, Holmesy, mm, you're a fan of this. Uh, I am. As, it's very good. As well. It's so funny. It's this wonderful mix of comedy and storytelling with almost even like slight elements of like a one-man show 
show. Yeah. It is yet another piece of great art this year uh, to tell the story of being raised by immigrant parents along with Master of None and The Big Sick. I mean, it's just been a very good year for that. This particular special is very daring in its form. It almost functions like comedy PowerPoint, where Hassan Minaj uses uh, the screen behind him to illustrate some of his points, sometimes with maps, sometimes with jokes, sometimes with context. And it really makes it a richer visual experience in addition to being just this wonderful just string of jokes and stories. I really, really loved it. I will probably watch it again. Uh, Homecoming King with Hassan Minaj. Thank you very much, Stephen Thompson. Glenn Weldon, what is making you happy this week now that you're back with us? Yeah, I spent two and a half weeks in Australia, and uh, I've been saving up a lot of stuff to talk about, so I'll parcel it out one by one. But in Australia, I opened an exhibit at the Gallery of Modern Art in Brisbane in Queensland, a Marvel creating the cinematic universe. I'll talk more about that in future weeks. But in the process of being down there, I met a lot of Australians who are a friendly, funny, gregarious people. Um, they're a very agreeable people. The way you can tell that is uh, it, it takes them more effort to disagree with something than to agree. If they agree with you, they just say, eh, less than, less than a syllable. And if they disagree with you, it takes them a lot more work. Eight syllables plus, they say, nah. <laughs> um, I love the ice cold beer. And I also noticed something about them. They have a phenomenon there called uh, the cultural cringe. Have you heard of this? I have not. Okay. Probably we've done it inadvertently. Well, no. It's a form of uh, cultural self-loathing. If they find out something's Australian, they think less of it. And that's why they love stuff from America and the UK. I want to say that they're great storytellers, even if they don't believe it, because uh, one of my first experiences with Australian culture was, back in 1989, a film called Sweetie, which turns out to be Jane Campion's first feature film. It's stylish. It's funny. It's kind of unsettling. It's about a young woman uh, who, and her rivalry with her sister, which kind of tears her family apart. It's an unforgettable film, an odd, quirky little film, but watching it, you will know, as I did back when I saw it in the theater in 1989, that I would be hearing from this director again. So that's uh, Sweetie, Jane Campion's first film. Thank you very much, Glenn Weldon. Petra Mayer, what is making you happy this week? Uh, What's making me happy specifically today as we tape this is that I have just finished cleaning up and tabulating 7,400 entries in NPR. Yeah, in the NPR Summer Reader Poll, which this year is comics. Yes, it is. And uh, I have trimmed that down to a list of semifinalists, which went out today to our panelists. Our expert judges will be talking on Monday. Our expert panel is so amazing. It includes Glenn Weldon, Uh our critic Atelka Lahotchki. I always say her name wrong. Sorry, Atelka. Hit me up. Uh, See Spike Trotman from mm-hmm. Iron Circus. Yep. Um, Stephen's mom, Maggie, will be with yes. us. Hey, and uh, I will have to stop myself from having palpitations. G. Willow Wilson, who is writing the current run of Ms. Marvel, Goodness. will be part of our panel. I'll be talking wow. on Monday and coming up with an awesome final list of 100 great comics for you to enjoy this summer. And part of this sort of process of tabulating is like finding out what people like and what's important to them. And part of the joy of being a nerd is finding out that other people like the things that you do. So what's making me happy this week is that seven people nominated Next Wave Agents of Hate, <laughs> which is one of my favorite comics of all time. So all y'all people out there who nominated Next Wave, my robot brain needs beer. Let's get a drink. And when can people see some results of that? Oh, yeah. So there's going to be all kinds of cool associated content. Um, watch NPR dot org slash books but the actual final list will go live july 12th just before we all leave for san diego comic-con so we'll be in a comic-y mood anyways fantastic thank you very much petra mayor because i was not here 
when Chance the Rapper had a surprise <laughs> sort of show at NPR, and I did not get the chance to run down the stairs and or up the stairs to see Chance the Rapper. Uh, search Instagram to find out more about that. I had to go with another piece of home cooking here at uh, NPR. I found out today, and I don't know how I didn't know, that Tracy Clayton of Another Round was on the Wait Wait panel this week, (laughs) which makes me so very happy because, look, it is one thing when Tracy comes and talks to us, Mm -hmm. right? For Tracy to bestow her level of cool upon us is one thing. Mm -hmm. But now you are talking about Tracy visiting, like a flagship NPR property. And that makes me so thrilled and happy because I love NPR. I love the Wait Wait team. I love everybody out there in Chicago. And I love listening to Tracy. Mm -hmm. And I cannot wait to hear it by the time you hear this. It should be um, out. But Tracy Clayton, Wait Wait Don't Tell Me, on a panel that also included Paul Poundstone and Faith Saley and Esther Prell. And I'm so excited about hearing it. And I could not contain my eagerness. So welcome to flagship NPR, (laughs) Wait Wait panelist, Tracy Clayton. And that is what is making me happy this week. And that brings us to the end of our show. You can follow all of us on Twitter. You can follow me at NPR Monkey C. You can follow Stephen at I Dislike Stephen. You can follow Glenn at G.H. Weldon. You can follow Petra at Petramatic. That's P-E-T-R-A-M-A-T-I-C. You can follow Trey Graham at Trey Graham. Trey with an E. Graham like the cracker. You can follow Chris Klimek at C.T. Klimek. That's C-T-K-L-I-M-E-K. You can follow our producer Jessica Reedy at Jessica underscore Reedy. And helping us out this week is Thomas Liu. You can follow Thomas on Twitter as well. The handle is at Thomas U-Y. So thanks to all of you guys for being here. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening. And we will see you right back here next week.